1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Douglas Bell. Today, I'll be speaking with Clayton Butler. We'll be discussing his new book, True Blue, White Unionist in the Deep South During the Civil War and Reconstruction, published by Louisiana State University Press. Clayton, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Clayton, uh, can we begin the conversation by talking a little bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
2: Sure. Uh, this book um, was essentially a revised dissertation. Um, I got my PhD in history at the University of Virginia in 2020. I actually defended my dissertation in uh, in March 2020 over Zoom, when that was a very new um, sort of experience for everybody involved. Um, my committee, I was very lucky to have some great um, scholars um, offering me supervision and guidance, uh, Gary Gallagher, Elizabeth Varen, and Caroline Janey, uh, as well as Stephen Cushman, who is uh, in the English department here, uh, but a real expert on 19th century America. Um, so uh, I I completed that dissertation. I began in 2014. I entered the PhD program here, um, and then uh, I graduated in 2020 and uh, began working um, at the University of Virginia Press. Shortly after that, um, but uh, sort of um, submitted my, my my dissertation to LSU because they had a really strong list of Civil War history, and I think as we'll talk about a little bit uh, tonight or, or over the course of this uh, this interview, um, Louisiana features very prominently in the subject matter of my my research in the book. So I was very very pleased to be able to work with them and. Rand Johnson, especially down at LSU Press.
1: Uh, the book is about uh, white Southern Unionists. So uh, who are white Southern Unionists and how have they been studied previously?
2: Sure. Uh, well, one thing that I think it's very important to to keep in mind is that Southern Unionists had a great deal in common with Northern Unionists in terms of the way they conceptualized the Union, the way they understood what they were fighting for. Uh, in the Civil War, in opposing secession, opposing the, the formation of the Confederacy. Um, a, a Unionist, in my research, was somebody who unconditionally supported the Union, somebody who rejected the formation of the Confederacy, rejected the legitimacy of secession, and hoped for a speedy return to the Union fold on whatever terms uh, were necessary. Uh, White Southern Unionists. It's important to, or it it, it may not surprise your your listeners uh, to hear that we're not we're ambivalent at best about slavery. They they were not pro emancipation in eighteen sixty, uh, and they had that in common with a lot with most Americans, white Americans uh, at that time. So when you talk about Unionism in eighteen sixty and and at, or eighteen sixty one at the outset of the war. You're really talking about the concept of union itself detached from any sort of support for emancipation that would come later and become associated with it. And that unionism is defined as as a, as a belief in the political, economic, and religious freedom offered by and, and protected by the American Union, which it can be very difficult for us you know, Americans, especially born in the 20th century uh, to understand the precariousness of the Union in the mid 19th century, the idea that this was still an experiment that could fail. When you look at uh, the, the, the very recent 1848 wave of revolutions and attempts to establish constitutional republics and, and in, in Europe that, that were crushed uh, by conservative elements. The sense of the precariousness of the union and the the political freedom, the right to vote, the economic freedom, the right to migrate, to own land in the West, uh, or and you know um, the ability to do that, which to, to most Europeans was tantamount to miraculous, and the religious freedom to to worship as you felt you know by the dictates of your conscience, essentially as as it was understood, uh, was a very precious thing, and so that is what. No, many most people in the north, in terms of the people who fought for the union for the preservation of the union, felt that they were fighting for, and that's this. That's what most white southerners who were unionists um, fought for as well. Um, essentially, this is when one talks about the union, you're you're talking about what Lincoln is referring to at the Gettysburg Address: government by the people, for the people, of the people. Uh, that's what they see as a, at stake, and that's what they are. Um, unconditionally uh, supportive of.
1: Have they been uh, studied previously by other historians?
2: Yeah. um, Unionism in the South is not an unknown or phenomenon, but I will say that when people think about the unionism during the Civil War, they're very often thinking of unionism in Appalachian regions, the Upper South, Places like West Virginia, which, of course, were part was partitioned as a result of the Civil War uh, because of its concentration of unionists in the western part of the state. Places like eastern Tennessee, Kentucky, and also the, the, the trans-Mississippi West bushwhacking places like Missouri that were really kind of the Wild West in some ways uh, still at that stage of the 19th century. And that sort of unionism is very frequently understood as... To be the result of the the lack of penetration of a slavery dependent slave based economy, um, cash crop economy. It's that's not the cotton South. That's not the South where uh, the economy is deeply deeply invested in slavery as an institution. So they resisted um, Confederate independence because they felt they had much less to to gain and more to lose uh, from from that sort of separation. My book looks at unionism in the Deep South, uh, places, uh, you know, the original seceding seven states, for example, the ones who went out immediately almost uh, on Lincoln's election, the ones who have the the higher proportion as a a total of their population of enslaved people and were more uh, deeply invested in slavery as a social system and economic system. I wanted to know whether there was unionism in these states, um, and uh, it turns out it was, although it was you know in some ways of a different character uh, than that of the upper south um, that is that has been more thoroughly researched
1: okay um how many is this a large population? Just curious about how like a white southern is in the deep south like is it a couple thousand? is it uh, yeah, a couple hundred? just curious about the the numbers that we're talking about here.
2: Um, it's it certainly depends on where you're looking. If you're looking in a place like the city of New Orleans, there was a sort of relatively high concentration of of unionism there as a result of the the large immigrant communities—German, Irish people who, in many, fled some of these 1848 um, were political refugees and and sort of had an even greater sense of the te- the tenuousness and the preciousness of the union, uh, and so they subscribed to to unionism. Um, for that reason there are unusual concentrations of unionists in places like Northern Alabama. Um, and then you are, you are talking about thousands, uh, thousands of people, um, communities, uh, in the, the Tennessee river Valley in the Northern part of that state, um, had an unusual concentration of unionism, uh, at the outset of, of the conflict. Um, but you also have places, um, in, in the rest of the deep South places like in, in, in more, plantation belt Alabama Louisiana Mississippi where unionism was was extremely rare uh, white unionism was extremely rare um, and even in the places where it was you, you're, you're talking about an unusual concentration it's never more than 10% of the state population um, yeah it's it's it is a, it is a true a, a true truly small minority uh, and to an extent a much more pronounced extent than in places like West Virginia or East Tennessee.
1: Okay, I mean, I think that also makes them um, interesting. If there's so few of them, um, how did how were they perceived by both the the North and the South?
2: Sure. Well, in to Northerners, these are crucial communities and individuals because they are the foundation upon which Reconstruction. Uh, which is always in the in the forefront of of Northerners' minds. Um, you know, how are we going to bring these people back into the Union? Um, these people are, are 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 looked to as a crucial block of potential future leaders of these states. People who have maintained an unconditional unionism, unbroken citizenship to the United States. Um, you know, when the war begins, the the concept of black citizenship, even of emancipation, but but to, to say nothing of black citizenship, is not really in very many people's minds in the north so as the war goes on they're looking to these white unconditional units in the deep south to play crucial leadership roles in bringing their states back into the Union um, as as model sit- southern citizens um, so there's an intense uh, 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 perhaps unsurprising but there's an intense degree of interest in who are these people uh, in northern minds you know who who are these sort of future, uh, potential leaders of of a reconstructed uh, deep South in the Confederacy. Um, these are the Tories of the Second American Revolution. These are the the loyalists to the to the Union. To you know the the quote unquote Black Republicans. Um, Con- Confederates were v- subscribed very quickly to uh, analogies, uh, and understanding their, their effort as similar to the American war of independence, which had about 80 years earlier. Um, and so to them, the, these are simply Tories, which, you know, there was uh significant memory of, uh, in, in especially in the South, but they took a lot of comfort in some ways from the fact that the, the number of Tories they had in their populace was, was much less than, than during the Re- American revolution when there were significant numbers of Tories, uh, loyalists to the crown uh, and to Great Britain during the Revolution, so they they sort of patted themselves on the back a little bit that yes, we have Tories, but there are a lot less of them uh, at, at this stage, and they viewed them as 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 traitors to the political ideals of the South or the Confederacy, I should say. And uh, more and more as the war goes on and the war t- uh, takes on an emancipationist character, they they are increasingly viewed as traitors not just to the political state of the Confederacy, but to the white race. Uh, this has uh, you know some pretty dire consequences uh, at certain points for some of these unionists. All
1: right so um, the first um, unit you look at in the book is the first Louisiana cavalry. Um, how did this unit perform and what was its um, yeah, how did it how did it perform fighting? How did it do in the war?
2: Sure. Well, it, it played uh, a, a role in the Port Hudson campaign, uh, of 63. Uh, it, it took, took part in the Red River campaign of 1864. It has a, the Red River campaign goes, it was pretty badly, uh, for, for the union, uh, as they, they try to go up the Red River in Louisiana into Texas. Um, and, uh, I found some very interesting um, letters in the LSU special collections That one Confederate soldier talked about how they um, took took a, a, a real measure of revenge against these Louisiana Unionists uh, during the Red River campaign. And, you know, uh, he, he he calls them Jayhawkers, which I think is sort of a, an unusual term uh, for, for these Unionists. But he this guy, Louis Bringer, uh these letters I found um, talks about how he he cleaned them out. Uh, and he underlined the word, clean them up. Um, you know, you know, emphasis in the original. Uh, so they they perform roles um, typical of cavalry. They screen the army's movements. They conduct reconnaissance, scouting missions, uh, protect supply lines. Uh, they're just you know highly prized for the mobility. And especially these Louisiana and these Southern units are prized for the fact that they are not. They're they know the territory to a degree more than somebody who's coming down from New Hampshire is going to know Louisiana anyway. And so they perform roles fairly typical of cavalry. Um, they don't have a sort of uh, momentous, you know, career, but they they are in the thick of it uh, in in Louisiana campaigns, uh, in, and they are uh, very readily deployed by Union leadership, um, military brass uh, in the in these sort of uh, especially the Port Hudson and the Red River campaigns. And then in eighteen sixty five, they early eighteen sixty five, they take part uh, in. The movement against uh, Mobile, and then finally Montgomery, uh, right at the end of the war.
1: Okay, um, what kind of men made up the the unit of the First Louisiana? Uh,
2: according to my my research and looking into to service records and and the, the sort of sources I was able to to track down, um, about half, maybe even slightly more than half of the First Louisiana Cavalry are foreign born. Um, residents of new orleans uh new orleans falls to union forces in uh, the early summer of 1862 and they immediately start recruiting the union army does start recruiting um native or not native but residents of new orleans louisiana to 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 serve in the union armies and they have the most success recruiting with with uh german irish there's still a, a good percentage of french Uh, immigrants to New Orleans at this stage uh, who are, say, ambivalent uh, at best about the Confederacy. They're they're not, they tolerate slavery uh, as necessarily as residents of a a deep South state, but um, have a sort of uh, antipathy towards slavery as an institution as reminiscent of old world aristocracy and landed sort of a feudal uh, institution that uh, many native-born Americans, white Southerners, like, took note of. Um, so the, the first Louisiana Cavalry is a unit that reflects the sort of cosmopolitan demographics of the place where it was recruited, which is New Orleans, which is one of the most diverse, uh, at least in terms of national origin, cities in the entirety of, of North America. So the the... That's the, the the demographic makeup of, of the regiment. There are also a number of native Louisian, white Louisianians and those who are Unionists who reside in East Texas, in Mississippi, um, and are able to make their way to New Orleans uh, to enlist, also find their way into the regiment. Okay.
1: Um, you say that this unit embodied... Uh, the United States' effort to harmonize military and political efforts to piece the country back together. Can you kind of explain how this unit reflected that idea?
2: Yeah, well, from the very beginning of the war, uh, Republicans, Lincoln among them, um, nurture this belief that most white Southerners are at heart unionists. they, They don't really want to, to break away from the United States. They don't have any real love for the Confederacy that real, you know, they're the, the fire eaters, the, the secessionists vocal, uh, proponents are really quite a, a small minority. And, and basically that, uh, many white Southerners have been whipped up into this kind of hysteria, but, um, can be brought back into the union fold, um, if given if given a sort of opportunity to do so and so they're constantly trying to elicit this this is northern leadership republican leadership in the united states democrats are a lot more hesitant as say you're underestimating the degree of antipathy here to the republican administration um but they're constantly trying to find seek out and support native white southern unionism so that they can sort of liberate themselves they can sort of um, as i as i was mentioned before bring the bring these states back into the union um and and start the process of rebuilding and be given the tools essentially to help them help themselves so the first louisiana cavalry these deep south unionists are the exact people these republicans uh and northern union leadership are looking for you know just give us guns give us ammunition give us the ability to to help you know fight against these these this confederacy and we will come back into the union gladly um so that's what i mean in that when i say that it's an attempt to harmonize the military and political progress of the war they want to help white southern unionists help themselves to bring these states back to 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 union allegiance um and what happens unfortunately over the course of the war is is there's a, a a sort of realization that the numbers that they were hoping for, this concentration of, of latent unionism just isn't there to the degree that, that sort of these uh, somewhat idealistic Northern Republicans had hoped it would be. They thought if when the Union army showed up, many white, many more white Southerners would say, would view them as deliverers, essentially, than in fact happened, that they underestimated the extent of Confederate nationalism that, that existed and the degree to which uh, the white population was was dead set against uh, reunion, so that's why they loved units like the First Louisiana Cavalry because they were confirmation of this hope. But you know there were only a couple of them. There weren't. They didn't materialize to the degree that they they would have wished.
1: Right. Well, makes a lot of sense. Uh, can especially see this idea of wanting these white uh, Southerners to want to liberate themselves and that this Confederate nationalism isn't so deep. But in fact, when the rubber hits the road, it actually is really deep. It's uh, really interesting. Um, The second unit you look at is the first Alabama cavalry. Um, What types of men formed and joined into this unit?
2: Sure. Well, in contrast to the first Louisiana cavalry, uh, the people who make up the first Alabama, and this is again, like I mentioned, largely drawn from the northern part of the state in the Tennessee River Valley, the hill, the hill country up there. Uh, they're they're almost all native-born white Amer- white Americans um, who have a deep set antipathy towards the planter class. Their their rejection of the Confederacy, their Unionism is more uh, firmly based in an opposition to both slave owners and enslaved people, uh, alike. Uh, but they have less connection, uh, to, to the, uh, the, the plantation cash crop economy. And, um, they have a lot more in common with say East Tennessee, West Virginian unionism, people who live in areas of the state that are not as, uh, not as heavily demographically uh, enslaved, and so they feel less of a sort of uh, pull in that respect towards the Confederacy. Um, I, I should mention here as well, and it's, it becomes very important uh, over the course of the story that, unlike in the Upper South, the places that I, you know, I said were traditionally associated with Unionism during the uh, during the Civil War, you know, West Virginia, East Tennessee, Kentucky, Missouri. Uh, Upper South Unionists tended to be uh, Whigs before the war, or at least not Democrats, because, of course, the Whig Party essentially collapses in the 1850s uh, prior to the war. But in New Orleans uh, and in Northern Alabama, Unionists tended to be Democrats. They tended to be of the, uh, at least in Northern Alabama, they tended to be of the Andrew Johnson style of Unionists. And uh, these Northern Alabama... Counties that supply the most Union soldiers uh, actually vote for Stephen Douglas in the 1860 election, and not Breckenridge, um, who is the is traditionally seen as the the quote unquote or you know the Southern Democratic candidate. They he's he's seen as the the candidate of the the of the slaveholder of the of the planter, and these Northern Alabamians uh, reject that. Uh, reject Breckinridge and actually vote for Douglas because they know that uh, first of all, they know Breckenridge can't win a national election uh, and Douglas can. And so as unionists, they and unionists and Democrats, they vote for Douglas because they know that Douglas's election will not precipitate a civil war, but uh, Lincoln's will. So their unionism is a, a democratic Andrew Johnson, Andrew Jackson strain of unionism Uh, which is distinct from a sort of more Whig, almost, you know, uh, Federalist um, antecedent unionism that you see in much of the Upper South.
1: Okay, that's very interesting. Um, How, what types of, uh, or how did the first Alabama perform in the war? What types of, uh, you know, uh, battles were they involved in? What was their mission?
2: Yeah, similarly to the first Louisiana, they performed, roles typical of cavalry. Um, they are sort of the eyes of the armies. They are conducting raids. They're, they're attacking railroads, uh, protecting supply lines, um, conducting reconnaissance. Um, and they, they function that role through most of 1863, uh, in 1864, um, they end up in Sher- in Sherman's army, uh, under under Sherman's c- control or command, I should say. And I think a really re- in a really remarkable turn of events that I think probably deserves more publicity uh, in terms of Civil War history. They end up uh, in the vanguard of Sherman's march to the sea. Sherman selects them to be to play a very important role in his march through Georgia, um, and. Part of this is that they are they they have a greater familiarity with the, the the country, its people, but also they are kind of let loose on 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 Georgia, and they they really take a a, a strong measure of revenge against the planter class, which, as they conceive it, uh, brought on the war, brought on secession, and the, and the and had um, really. Preyed on them and their families uh, in the in the secession winter and in the early stages of the war before the Union Army had arrived to offer some kind of support to them. Uh, Sherman kind of lets these these Alabama Unionists loose in Georgia, um, and they become somewhat infamous on the march. Um, but I think uh, it, it is Sherman. Sherman was knew how to send a message, and uh, you know by deploying the white Southerners, Southern unionists in the march to the sea, I think he, he sends a very clear message that he's not making war on the South. He's making war on treason and secession that he has nothing against Southerners per se, as long as they are, they're unionists and, and their role in, in going with Sherman in 64 is, uh, a really striking example of, um, sort of the forg- forgotten unionist hiding sort of in plain sight in civil war history.
1: Mm-hmm. So that decision by Sherman was explicit in like very political, um, from his point of view, from what Sherman was doing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he was very, um, conspicuous in, 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 in this sort of, in, in putting, he, he made, uh, several companies of the first alabama his his headquarters guard uh, who literally marched right with him he, another person who came with him on the march was um, william smith who who ends up governor of alabama a few years later uh, he's sort of too old to be serving in the ranks but he's he's a, a prominent alabama unionist at this time and he goes with sherman as a kind of advisor in his in his uh among his um, you know with his staff and so he's Sherman is, is very keen to associate himself with the Unionist element of the South.
1: Okay. Um, you next turn to the uh, Fort Pillow, Pillow Massacre. Um, could you maybe first explain what the Fort Pillow Massacre was um, and how it's typically discussed uh, in Civil War history?
2: Yeah. Uh, the Fort Pillow Massacre is one of, if not the most infamous events of the war and became a sort of byword uh, in years to come by, by contemporaries. Uh, Essentially what happened was there, Fort Pillow was a fort um, north of Memphis on the Mississippi river. Um, And in 1864, um, it was uh, essentially um, occupied by uh, USCT, that is United States colored troops and uh, white Southern unionists uh, from West Tennessee about, 50-50 50-50 uh, in terms of the, the makeup of the fort at that stage. And in April 1864, uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, the notorious Confederate cavalry leader who I think, you know, any any uh, Civil War, um, anybody who's interested in the Civil War will be familiar with, um, attacked Fort Pillow, um, re- you know, fought his way in, uh, his men fought their way in, and the the garrison uh, attempted, was not allowed to surrender uh, and was uh, essentially slaughtered, um, uh, put put to death, uh, not allowed to surrender uh, by forest troops. Uh, and this was seen quite rightly because it was as a, a racial atrocity. The, these Confederate soldiers refused to accept the surrender of black troops and, and murdered them instead. Um, and this caused uh, a real outcry in the North um that you know uh, the Confederates had to be punished for for not res- you know respecting um the the rights of of Union soldiers, people in in a union uniform um And uh you know, Lincoln promises a, a congressional investigation, uh, and essentially it's found that that yeah, Forrest has committed an atrocity here and it's only when uh, the threat of rep- reprisal against Confederate uh, prisoners of war crops up that, you start to have denials from uh, from Confederate leadership and from Forrest himself. Initially, they, they're not they're not even apologetic about it. They it fits with their stated policy of you know um, a black soldier in arms will be treated as a, a sort of rebelling slave and, and can be legitimately put to death or reenslaved. But Fort pillow becomes a byword for brutality um, during the Civil War and even after, uh, and contributes strongly to Forrest's really kind of black reputation um then and then and no so that's that's for pillow um mm-hmm.
0: this episode is brought to you by shopify <coughs> do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: So uh, the focus then typically is on uh, the slaughter and the atrocity, but you were trying to bring in uh, the white unionists who were also there. And can you talk about how incorporating them into the narrative uh I mean, not changes, but deepens our understanding of the atrocity,
2: right? And of course, my my intention here is not to, to in any way sort of move the focus away from the black victims of, of Fort Pillow to say that they were somehow you know the the real victims were somehow white unionists. That's not my intention at all. I just, but I think there's not a great level of uh, of knowledge of the fact that half of the garrison of Fort Pillow consisted of white unionists from Tennessee that according to um, some of Forrest's own men and according to con- the congressional testimony uh, gathered that Forrest uh, put many of these white Unionists to death as well and because he they were seen as traitors to the white race. White Southerners, you know, arrayed in combat side by side with black, for- mostly formerly enslaved men uh, against the Confederacy was literally the the white the the confederate nightmare um and this so horrified and so enraged confederate soldiers that they put uh these black troops and these white unionist troops to death um as a result of their you know race traitor uh race treason i guess would be the word um but it's not just that white unionists were there and also became victims, which I do think is is, prop, is not properly sort of known, uh, widely known. But what's really interesting to me is that the white Southern Unionists who are fighting side by side with the with the black troops uh, at Fort Pillow are really ambivalent about it, and are and are 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 really not enthusiastic about about serving with black troops there's this incredible piece of testimony uh and this was attested by um uh a member of Bradford's battalion this unionist battalion uh testifying before a congressional committee uh where this soldier says that he had found a place to hide a white union sol- uh had found a place to hide during the the massacre that was going on and during and in his hiding place comes a black soldier one of his black comrades who was also a union soldier and this white Unionist testified that during the massacre he told the black his black uh comrade to get out of the hiding place he said get the heck out of here because if the confederates see me with you they'll kill both of us and they and he knows exactly why the confederates are full of uh this murderous rage against uh against these unions. It's because of this alliance this visible alliance of white and black soldiers is and, and the fact that a, a white union soldier would willingly testify that he kicked a black comrade out of a hiding space because he knew that, that their alliance was what was going to get him killed speaks to the deep ambivalence of the white southern unionist for emancipation and for the and for and for serving with black troops um this is a, a measure of their unconditional union unionism that they will tolerate this alliance but they are not enthusiastic about it and they view it very much as a sort of necessary measure to to defeat the Confederacy, but is not something that they are championing. Um, And the Fort Pillow Massacre speaks both to the Confederates' hatred of of that that white um, betrayal to serve with Black soldiers, but also with the deep ambivalence of White Southern Unionists um, in what they were engaged in. And that's going to have major uh, ramifications in the post war period.
1: Okay. Do you know any other similar situations where this kind of uh, experience happens where the Confederates are, you know, in a murderous rage and killing blacks and whites? It the same like in a similar situation or is this kind of a a unique uh uh event in the civil war
2: there are there are situations where um the confederates do similarly massacre black troops uh especially you know and and black troops are almost always serving in some capacity with white troops um you see that the battle of the crater for example is one of the most infamous examples I don't know of any other instance of black troops and white Southern unionists fighting together. Uh, that, that, that happens at Fort pillow. There are other instances where, where Confederates put, uh, white Southern unionists to death, uh, rather than take them prisoner. Uh, that happens in 1862 in Louisiana, uh, for example, but not on the same scale. Um, and I, it's, that's not a uniform policy either. There are other times when whites and unionists are taken prisoner. Uh, and and it's not as though uh, this was a, um, the standard sort of reaction. I really think that it was the combined uh, whites and unionists, black troops fighting side by side that makes Fort Pillow so incendiary to Confederates and was not common in... Partially for the reasons I just said, which is that white Southern Unionists are very ambivalent, uh, if not openly hostile to the prospect of, of serving next to, to black soldiers.
1: Okay. Well, that kind of, I guess, goes to my my next question, which was, and when you've touched on it, is how did these uh, white Southern Unionists feel about uh, slavery, blacks, and emancipation in during the war and afterwards?
2: The vast, the, the vast majority of white Southern Unionists, especially in the Deep South, are hostile to, or at least not supportive of slavery as an institution. Uh, they they reject the sort of undue political, economic, social influence afforded to slave owners and planters as a result of the institution. They, they, they find that to be undemocratic and um, they... they they reject that, but, and again, this is this is true of, of Southerners and Northern white Northerners alike. In the vast majority of cases, this does not necessitate any solicitude for the enslaved at that uh, you know as a sort of the other side of that. They they basically hated slavery and the enslaved as well. Um, again, this is this is, is similar to the the Unionism, the anti-slavery uh, of. Somebody like Andrew Johnson, who was a deep, who was a a, a, a a real racist, but somebody who also hated slavery as an institution because of what it did, uh, as he saw it, to degrade the non-slaveholding white uh, population, and and most whites deeps, uh, most white unionists in the deep south uh, have a similar attitude towards slavery, um, so they are. They view emancipation as a means to an end. They view emancipation as a a sort of bitter pill that they will take if it will help them uh, win the war, because they understand that slavery is is supporting and, and and uh propping up the Confederacy in an important way. They view it as a punishment. A, and, a, and a future check against a, the old slaveholding class—they they know that slavery is what caused secession and the war in the first place, and getting rid of it will get will cut out that possibility uh, in the future. Um, but they the, almost never view emancipation as the right thing to do on behalf of enslaved people. Um, it, there are a few cases of that, but it's it, it's important to understand that that's almost never how they're conceiving of emancipation. It's not the end in itself. It's not their goal. Uh, it is a means to a different end, which is the, the saving of the union.
1: So would they be in support of like... Uh colonization then of like having yeah, slaves uh, sent back to Africa after they were free, enslaved.
2: Yes. Uh, I, I shouldn't say that, you know, in a, a blanket way, but uh, in the way that that was a, a sort of cherished, uh, a bizarrely cherished hope of so many white Americans right up through the middle of the 19th century, uh, because they are totally unable to conceive of a biracial polity Then yes, one of, one of Alabama's most strident unionists, uh, C.C. Sheets was his name, is talking about colonizing all the the black population of, of Alabama out to the west, uh, in the 1870s. Uh, he's talking, he's still talking about the notion of like, we cannot, you know, we have to get, separate the black and white population. This is in the 1870s. This guy is a very interesting guy. He's an unconditional unionist from northern Alabama. Uh, Grant actually ends up making him the minister to Denmark uh, during his administration. It's a fascinating, you know, maybe there should be a movie about this guy, but he is he is a classic example of, he is a really strident unionist, but he is an unblinking racist and he wants, uh, he is advocating the, the removal of black citizens of Alabama in the 1870s uh, to the Western United States. So so yes, uh, short answer to your question is yes
1: so uh you also look at these uh, white Southern unionists during the period of reconstruction so I guess during the first phase of reconstruction presidential reconstruction w- what's going on with white Southern unionists how, how are they dealing with the the union victory but also with their their neighbors
2: right well sort of tragically for these white southern unionists the situation that that uh, materializes very quickly after the end of the war is, is very similar to the one they were enduring at the beginning of the war, where uh, they're being harassed, they're being you know they're they're being um, sort of marginalized again very quickly when the Confederate soldiers come back and 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 the and the Union soldiers uh, leave uh, they're once again in this very precarious position where they're completely outnumbered uh, for the most part and. Um, you know, Scott, students of the Civil War history will know that in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, many Confederates were completely unrepentant, uh rapidly rehabilitated, and and you know, essentially were walking around feeling like they hadn't done anything wrong. Um so for many uh white Southern Unionists, they they're they're in late 1865, they're feeling like, wow, like who won the war? Um you know, this is pre, this is uh, before the 14th and 15th Amendments. Um, you know, black Southerners who recently emancipated still can't vote. So once again, uh, these white Southern Unionists are, are outnumbered, uh, po- forced to the political margins, um, harassed and hounded, and, and uh, are, are thinking to themselves, you know, geez, like, you know, how, how did we end up back here? Um, and this is, uh, this becomes a situation that, uh, arouses the the sympathy and the attention of, of people in the north um that that this these people who fought on the wrong on the right side who risked so much to support the union have um have received no none of their just deserts
1: right that makes sense so were they then supportive of uh republican politicians and of the uh beginning of the second half of reconstruction congressional reconstruction was this yes you know-
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, their, their experiences, um, of course the experiences of, of emancipated people, the black codes, um, the unrepentant, uh, Confederates who send, you know, um, Alexander Stevens back to, back to Congress. You know, the, you have, there, there are people commenting that if you weren't a Confederate soldier, you can't get elected in the South right after the war. um, and this is really alarming uh, in the North and, and the experience of whites and unionists is part of what galvanizes the North to, to really overwhelmingly vote in Republicans, um, in 1866. And, uh, yes, so whites and unionists are initially very supportive of this wave of Republican support for them, uh, trying to, um, Break the the sort of the chokehold that former Confederates and Democrats have on on Southern politics. You know, I mentioned earlier about how many Northerners looked to these white Southern Unionists to play an uh, an important role uh, in the postwar period. Well, these Unionists expected to play that role. They they expected a seat at the table, uh, and when they were summarily denied it by these returning Confederates, they turned to uh, they turned to Northern Republicans and they turned to uh you know, recently emancipated people to help uh vote them into power and, and give them this this uh seat at the at the at the government um that they felt like they deserved and they needed to to help restore uh properly their states to the union fold.
1: So how did things go under Congressional Reconstruction? Did these start winning offices uh in in taking control of state legislators or
2: they do. Yes. Uh, A number of unionists uh, play very important roles in congressional reconstruction. Um, I mentioned William H Smith who went with Sherman uh, on his March. He ends up, he's the first Republican governor of Alabama in its history. Uh, This is a guy who was, as I said, he was a Democrat before the war. Uh, because he's he's from the deep south, he's one of these guys, but but he he joins the Republicans because in essentially the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and he and he ends up he he goes into office as a Republican. Um, West Tennessee unionists uh, also end up in 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 Congress in positions of uh, of of political power. Um, unfortunately, what starts to happen is the conservative backlash against congressional reconstruction and black voting rights, uh, that is manifested in things like the Klan and voter intimidation and political violence, uh, affects these, these former unionists as well. Uh, and they find themselves marginalized, um, and, and harassed and, and their property destroyed. And sometimes they're, they're, they experience violence, um, themselves and this profound social pressure, uh, starts to tell on them. Um there's a great line in uh, DeBow's review uh, that the New Orleans uh, Journal is sort of the, the the mouthpiece of the the Southern ruling elite, the planter class. And it, it comes out in the late 1860s, I believe, and it says essentially it's it's addressing these unionists uh, in places like Louisiana, Alabama, and it says, you know, better to have a friend across the street than a friend in New Hampshire. Um, you know, you cannot oppose overwhelming public opinion. And the sooner you come back into the fold, the sooner everything will be better for you. And that, I think, really succinctly sums up the quandary that these unionists are facing, is the only way they can prop themselves up politically is with uh, national Republican power. These, these uh, you know, the, the neighbor in New Hampshire, as they say. And uh, with the black vote, which uh, as we've seen from some of the attitudes of people at Fort Pillow and, and, and in, it, it, they're deeply reticent to do. So they have to rely on this very tenuous uh, uh, alliance or alignment of, of, of voting blocks that uh, really uh, is, is not able to, to withstand a lot of, of social pressure.
1: Okay. so what then what ultimately was this social pressure what ultimately would lead them to do they abandon the Republican party or uh, to kind of move away from this uh biracial effort of uh, democratic politics after the Civil War
2: yeah so in many ways the the story of deep south unionist politically I think reaches its this this really incredible conclusion in 1872 when there's a governor gubernatorial election in alabama and the democratic party in the state makes a very conscious ploy to pry away the white former unionist vote of northern alabama back to the democratic party so they had been voting republican because of the experiences of the uh the immediate post-war period but they're starting to feel this social pressure they're starting to buckle uh, the, the, this uh, political alliance with with the with black voters is starting to to become untenable, and so Democrats um, tap um, George Smith Houston, who was ostensibly neutral during the war, not a former Confederate, not an, a completely outspoken Confederate secessionist, somebody tolerable to the former unionist vote in Northern Alabama and they tap him to, to run for governor and the Northern counties, the ones who had voted for, for Douglas say in 1860 swing decisively to Houston to back to the Democrats in 1872. Um, so they, they abandon their former, their black former comrades. They, in order to hold the color line, uh, and and reestablish dem- the democratic political control of the state. This is essentially the de facto end of Reconstruction in Alabama is is the 1872 election when Democrats sweep back into power and they sweep back into power largely on this on the backs of white former unionist voters in northern Alabama, which is a real irony, the idea that these 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 people who fought so risked so much to 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 support the union and fight against the Confederacy during the war are in some ways the crucial voting block that ends that, that succeeds in redeeming quote unquote, this is the, the term that's always been used redeeming Alabama for the democratic party, banishing the radical agents of, um, of republicanism and re- and restoring democratic rule and setting in, uh, essentially a hundred years, um, of, of oppression uh, and and disenfranchisement for Black Alabamians. This is the Unionists, uh, the former Unionists, who make that happen. Um, and that understanding how that could be possible is is really key to understanding nineteenth century politics in America. I think in a in a broad sense.
1: Yeah, fascinating. Um, so, having written and studied about these uh, individuals and in their units, um, what do they tell us about the Civil War and about Reconstruction in a broader, you know, uh, sense?
2: Yeah, I think more so than even many Northern soldiers, they throw into very stark relief how unionism and support for emancipation or Black civil rights are distinct causes uh, in the 19th century They that do not necessarily follow from one another. The reason that These Alabama unionists in 1872 can vote for a Democratic candidate uh, without reservation and and, end Republican rule in the state. Uh, Alabama doesn't elect another Republican governor, by the way, until the early 80s, I think, uh, 1980s, that is, um, is because their mission, which is to save the union, has been accomplished they don't view this as a sort of compromise. They don't view this as a sort of failure because black civil rights, black voting and, and protection of, of, of the black population of Alabama was never their goal. Their goal was was to save the union. And in that respect, they don't view reconstruction as a failure the way that we uh, subsequent generations have looked at it as this missed opportunity to, to, to really secure and, and codify black rights in, in, in the Deep South. I think in that's the the most important t- takeaway here that th- the nature of unionism to many nineteenth century Americans is is a distinct cause, uh, separate from emancipation, that that emancipation is a a means to an end of winning the war. The black vote is a means to an end of ending the the Democratic stranglehold during presidential reconstruction, but never the goal in and of itself. So it's not a goal abandoned uh, on the part of these unionists, um, and that they achieved what they had, had hoped to achieve, uh, which is the, the defeat of the Confederacy and the preservation of the union and Southern unionists show that very clearly, I think.
1: Yeah. Okay. sounds, uh, yeah, really, really explains the nature of these individuals and why, why they can be seen even as a small group, why they're uh, tell us some very interesting uh, facts about the Civil War and uh, what happened afterwards. Um, we've taken a, a lot of your time, so I want to end with the new book's traditional last question, and, and that is: uh, Are you working on anything now or anything next?
2: Um, I think it's probably uh, it's it's probably the early stages uh, would be a generous way of describing it. Uh, but I, I've always I've, I've I have a project in mind about. Uh, the Civil War era as a time when broad swathes of Americans, big groups of Americans encountered one another for the first time ever. I've always been struck by reading accounts when, say, Confederate soldiers are are, are, are taken by train up to Ohio to be put in a prison camp. And the whole town will come out to, to get a look at a, a real genuine Confederate and these Southerners. There's this fascination um, with with Americans, with, with one another in the civil war. Uh, you know, this is the first time Northerners, uh, white Northerners met white Southerners on a large scale, especially people who hadn't had the means to travel in the past. People, uh, you know, farmers, poorer people, uh, you know, are moved around in a big way. It's the first time, uh, that, that white Northerners encountered, um, African Americans on a large scale, uh, especially people from the Midwest or, you know, this was, this was an important sort of moment of meeting for them. It was conversely the first time that African-Americans in the South met non-Southern whites uh, on any kind of large scale. Um, there's stories of fraternization, uh, that abound in civil war history of, of, uh, white Confederates, uh, Confederate soldiers, white union soldiers, um, meeting and, and sort of finding out that they had a lot in common and and being fascinated with one another. And I just think that this moment of different Americas, white Northerners, white Southerners, black Southerners, um, men, women uh, encountering each other um, on a large scale, uh, what it does to the psyche of Americans and, and the way they think about themselves and their nation over the next... 50, 100 years, uh, what, what kind of effect that had, I, something that I'm, I would like to be able to, to research more fully, uh, if possible.
1: Yeah. Wow, it sounds fascinating. I would definitely read that book. Um, yeah, but, uh, um, I wanted to thank you and, uh, hopefully we can have you on next time when you have your book, your next book. Thanks. ready.
2: Thanks so much for having me. This was great.